You're listening to The Jewish Truth Bomb with Lenny Goldberg. Hey, this is Lenny Goldberg, and thank you for joining me today. We opened up Sefer Shmot this past Shabbat, and during these Parshiot, we're introduced to none other than Moshe Rabbeinu, the great Moses, our great leader, our great rabbi. And when you think about what makes Moses the great Jewish leader he is, what did he do? Well, the obvious answer, everybody would say, well, he brought down the Torah from Sinai. I mean, he's Moshe Rabbeinu. He stood face to face with the Almighty. But the question is, how did he get to be Moshe Rabbeinu? What was his background? That What were his traits that produced the Moshe Rabbeinu? Well, when the Torah introduces Moses, you have three very short little stories here, one after another, and that is how we are introduced to him to learn what kind of person he is. And the first story, in the first chapter of Exodus, it says, And it was in those days, and Moshe grew up. He's not a baby anymore in a teva. He's grown up now. He went out to his brothers. And he saw their suffering. And he saw an Egyptian man hitting a Hebrew man. He turned to each side. He saw there's nobody looking. And he smote the Egyptian. So here's Moses enjoying a good life at the palace. He's not a slave. The opposite, he's the prince of Egypt. Maybe next in line to be the paro. But he sees an injustice and he jeopardizes his, not only his high position, but his very life he jeopardizes. To do what? To help a Jew. He could not stand to see a Jew suffering. He saw the suffering of his brothers. And of course, he is going to pay a dear price for it. He's going to have to flee for the next 40 years. But that is the characteristic of a Jewish leader. Somebody who cares for his fellow Jew and is willing to take risks for him. And the Midrashim expound on how much Moses cared about his people even before this. He was telling Paro how the Jewish people needed a day of rest. He was trying to finagle them a little break. He said to Paro, after all, your slaves will bring you better results if you give them one day of rest. And Paro gave them the Shabbat as a day off. And that's because of Moses. And that's one of the reasons on Shabbat, in the morning prayer, what do we say in the tefillah of Shabbat? Yismach Moshe kibat nat chelko. That Moses was happy with the portion he was given. What does Moses have to do with Shabbat? Now we know he instituted Shabbat in Egypt for the Jews to rest. Okay, so that's the first story. Moses kills the Egyptian. Now in the very next verse, it says that he saw two men, two Hebrews, were fighting one another. And Moses said to the evil one, Lama taket reyecha, why are you hitting a fellow Jew? So here's Moses. He just killed an Egyptian taskmaster. He buried him in the sand so he doesn't get caught. You'd think he'd lie low now, right? He'd stay out of trouble, let the thing pass. No, he sees two Jews fighting, quarreling, and he gets involved. He could have stayed out of it, but he's not the type of person who sits on the sidelines and stays within his Arba Amot, in his little private sector, in his bubble. No, he's an activist, so to speak. Now, what does he do here? He doesn't kill the bad guy. He doesn't kill anybody like he slew the Egyptian because we're talking about two Jews here. You don't have to kill him. But what does he do? He fulfills the mitzvah of Tochacha. 
He rebukes his fellow Jew and says, Why are you hitting your fellow Jew? He reproves him. Most people, they don't like to rebuke. They say, ah, what's it going to help? It's better to ignore it and have everybody like you. Okay, so that's story number two about Moses. And remember, this is way before Moses gets the tablets from God. It's way before he was on Mount Sinai. No, no, these stories show us what made him worthy to be Moshe Rabbeinu. In the first place, we see that he had empathy. He cares. That's his quality. He cares. Okay, story number three. A couple verses later, Moses has to flee. The stinkers in Am Yisrael are stinkering on him. They're informing on him. And so he has to flee to Midian. And that's how it always is. A Jew does something good. And instead of getting the accolades and being a hero, he's condemned. That is, these two Jews were fighting with another. Instead of praising Moshe and saying, Kol that you killed that Egyptian, we didn't have the guts to do it. You're a giver. No, they say, what, are you going to kill us like you killed the Egyptian? So Moses has to suffer, has to leave, and he flees to Bidyan. And then we get another story, which shows the kind of person that Moses is. He sees an injustice. He sees that the shepherds in Midian are bullying the daughters of Yitro. He doesn't know Yitro. He doesn't know anybody. But he doesn't like what he sees. He doesn't know these girls, never saw them before. But he sees they are being harassed at the well. So what does the verse say? The verse says, Vayoshian, and Moses saved them. That is, he rescued the girls from these bullies. Again, he gets involved. He doesn't say, I'm a fugitive. I better lie low. No, no. He steps in and drives away the bullies. Notice how he handles each situation. He doesn't kill anybody like the first time with the Egyptian. It's not necessary. He doesn't rebuke anybody this time, like he rebuked those two Jews, because we're not talking about Jews now. We're talking about non-Jews. He doesn't have to rebuke. He doesn't have to kill anybody. But what does he do? He solves the problem. So that's who he is. He's a person who can't stand idly by. That's what makes him a great leader. Empathy. He cares. He sees injustice. It burns inside of him. He just can't ignore it and forget it. And again, all this before he knew a letter of Torah, the very opposite. If anybody didn't know Torah, it was him. He grew up and assimilated into Egyptian society, so much so that when Yitro's daughter said to her father that an Egyptian man saved us, and she was meeting Moses, she called him an Egyptian man, Moses didn't even correct her. And he was punished for that. They say because of that, he didn't merit to go to Eretz Israel because he didn't correct her and say, I'm not an Egyptian, I'm a Jew. He didn't say that. So it wasn't that he knew a lot of Torah at this point. He knew very little. But somebody with those characteristics, he can be a vessel to receive Torah. Speaking of Moshe Rabbeinu, I wanted to play for you a very old speech that Rabbi Meir Kahane gave back in 1970. We're talking about the early days of JDL, the Jewish Defense League, the organization that he established to protect the elderly and impoverished Jews who lived in neighborhoods that were once very Jewish, but little by little the neighborhood changed and the wealthier Jews moved out to the suburbs and these poor Jews were stuck there facing crime and violence and anti-Semitism. And he established the JDL, the Jewish Defense League. And so he was speaking to American Jews, explaining the ideology of the JDL. He's talking to these American Jews about the Jewish Defense League and the need sometimes for violence because that was a novel idea. What? Jews doing violence? Unheard of. That was the big rap against the JDL in those days. 
by the Jewish establishment that the organization uses violence and that's against Judaism, of course, and Jewish ethics, violence is bad, etc. And so the rabbi here is in a synagogue explaining to people that violence is sometimes necessary. And he gives the example of Moses that I just gave when he smites the Egyptian. So let's hear what the rabbi says. Violence? How much violence? As much as is necessary for the Jew to survive. And when we say those words, our Jewish leaders, the secular leaders of Jewish organizations, cry out that this is un-Jewish. What you are saying is un-Jewish. The Jewish Defense League is un-Jewish. We hear this from those eminently Jewish organizations, the American Jewish Congress, B'nai B'rith, the committee, and what have you. Instant experts on what is Jewish. If one wants to know what a Jewish concept is, he goes to a Jewish source. And it's quite true that to turn the other cheek is in the Bible. But you've been reading the wrong Bible. And one goes to the Jewish Bible for concepts of what a Jew does when there are no other ways. There was once a Jew named Moshe, Moses. He was a good Jew. By this time, he has already become an establishment Jew. And the Bible tells us of how Moses went out to his people and they beheld an Egyptian smiting a Jew. Now Moses did not immediately rush to form a committee to study the root causes of Egyptian anti-Semitism. <laughs> Those are the words of the Bible. And he smote the Egyptian. We may like this. We may not like it. That's not relevant. That's a Jewish concept by a good Jew. That was Rabbi Meir Kahana way back in 1970 in the early years of JDL. He's trying to speak some sense to the Jewish community. And you got to love the rabbi's timing and sense of humor when he said that it's true that to turn the other cheek is in the Bible. The problem is you're reading the wrong Bible. Hope you caught that one because that was funny. Okay, moving on to the rabid, hardcore Jew hatred that's sweeping across America at record speed. And it's not just the Arabs, it's a lot of young people who have been indoctrinated in universities. And we see anti-Semitism of such virulence. And I see how Jews are trying to explain themselves or justify themselves to the Jew haters on social media or at demonstrations. And it's kind of pathetic to witness because, you know, we think people are reasonable that after what happened on October 7th, we're thinking, well, if that doesn't prove who is evil and who is good, and who is right and who is wrong, nothing will. That's got to be proof of something, no? That's got to be some kind of proof of who the bad guys are. That's what we're thinking. But it doesn't work that way. We have to stop debating these anti-Semites by bringing up the massacre and saying, see, look what they did to us. See how bad they are? It doesn't work. And then when the anti-Semites deny that it ever happened, despite that there's footage of it all over the place, what are we going to tell them? No, no, it really did happen. Look. I mean, it's debasing to even have to bring that up. We don't want to have to flaunt our victimhood to the world. There's no end to it. And there's no end to their evil. I mean, look what the hostages went through while in Gaza. They're traumatized for life, the ones that weren't murdered. So what are we going to do? Keep talking about how evil the Hamas are. We have to stop using this as an argument because it's not going to help. And again, it's debasing. 
And then you have this argument that people use to try to put Israel in a better light. They say, look how Israel has contributed to the world, the technology, all their technology. Without Israel, you wouldn't have your cell phone and all their other technical contributions to the world. Oh yeah, like that's going to convince them. But that's also debasing to even have to mention it. So we have to understand there is nothing you can say to these people to convince them. The only thing that we can do and you can do is to make Israel strong, help Israel, help Israel in any way you can. If you're outside of Israel, come and live in Israel. Strengthen Israel, help Israel, and let all these Jew haters eat their hearts out. There is nothing to say to them. We just have to win and let these bastards just eat their hearts out. Like when Pharaoh told Moses, I don't know Hashem, there is no Hashem. Moses didn't start explaining to him philosophically about Hashem's existence. He didn't fetch about the treatment of the slaves. He gave Paro Makot, 10 plagues. That's the only thing that the nations understand. But when you see the Jew hatred so open, you have to see the warnings. You have to grasp the hint. Like in the Torah parsha, we read this past Shabbat. What happens? Right in the first chapter, it describes the slavery stage by stage. Doesn't happen right away. Not in one shot. Happens in stages. It's always that way. But you have to figure it out from the beginning and try to figure out what's next. It's like after the Nuremberg Wars. The Jews, they were thrown out of a lot of areas of life. They weren't equal citizens in Germany anymore. Certain professions were prohibited to them. They couldn't sit on the same bench as the Aryans. People were fired from their jobs. The Jews couldn't attend the theater. They couldn't attend concerts. And there's a book written which contains all kinds of questions that were asked to rabbis during the time of the Holocaust and the persecution. And one of the questions was during this period before the Holocaust, when the Jews couldn't go to the opera anymore, they couldn't go to a concert. And somebody asked the rabbi if uh, we could do a concert or an opera in the synagogue because we're not allowed to go to the theater in Germany. And if such a thing is allowed, do we have to be seated separately? That's what they asked. And you can understand it. The woman still has her nice fur coat. She wants to go out for some entertainment, to have some fun with all the harsh decrees. She wants to enjoy herself a little bit. You want to feel some semblance of normalcy. But the problem is, the situation isn't normal. You got to see the writing on the wall. You have to pack your bags and get out of there. There'll always be voices in the establishment saying, no, it'll pass, it'll pass. And there's a voice in your head saying, yeah, it'll pass, it'll pass. Because who wants to change their whole life? Who wants to uproot their entire life? But we saw in Germany and we see in Alpasha, it doesn't pass. It never passes. So you have to take the hint because if you don't, it's going to end badly. And how the Egyptians enslaved us in Egypt, I mean, it's just like out of the book of what happened in Germany. It didn't happen right away. First, it was incitement. Pharaoh said, I'm Israel, Ravat Sumimenu. The Jewish people are getting bigger. They're going to be a fifth column. So first, you have the incitement. That's the next stage. What are we going to do about it? They're dangerous. So you demonize them. You leave them open to beatings. And after the incitement, then you start with the laws of Nuremberg. Then you start making laws. You take away their rights. You tax them to death. That's what they did in Egypt. You force them into hard labor. And then you begin to murder them, but not in the open, not outright murder yet. No, first you do it secretly, not in public. Pharaoh tells the midwives to kill the Jewish babies, but it's not an open Holocaust yet. No, no, no. It's a process. The mass murder that comes on an industrial scale, it never comes right away. It can't. 
the people won't let it happen. So it happens in stages. And so the moment they didn't allow you to attend the concert, you should already get the hint and get the heck out of there. Now, bringing this all up to date with the Jew hatred that's spreading all over America, when you see those marches, when you see march after march of Arabs in the middle of Teaneck in a Jewish neighborhood on New Year's, take the hint, pack your bags, come to Israel. What are you waiting for? For them to come knocking on your door? Now, the same principle holds for Israel too. You got to grasp the hint. You see the Arabs are shooting missiles at you from Gaza and you keep intercepting them with your Kipat Barzel defense systems, with the Iron Dome. You're not supposed to hide behind the Iron Dome. You smash the enemy and you obliterate them. You don't wait for the 7th of October. You're supposed to catch the hint before that. You have to know what you're dealing with from the very beginning. So when Rabbi Kahana, he predicted all these things that's going to happen, he wasn't a prophet, but he saw the tip of the iceberg. The writing was on the wall. The hints were already there. But circling back to the persecution in Egypt and Parshas, what was the response of the children of Israel? We see over and over again, they continue to live. What do you mean live? What's life? They keep having children. That's life. That's survival. That's what the verses keep telling us. They have more and more children. And then when the oppression began, it says, But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. And as much as the Egyptians persecuted them, the Jews kept thriving and having more kids. And Pharaoh knows it's a problem. He can't stop the proliferation of the Jewish population in Egypt. So what does he do? He tells the Jewish midwives to kill the boys, to kill the males when they're born. We got to stop this Jewish birth rate. But what does the verse say? But the midwives kept the babies alive. They refused Pharaoh's orders. The verse says, they kept the children alive. So no matter what happened, we still had a lot of Jewish babies. So that's the secret to survival. Lots of Jewish babies. And my good friend, his name is Bob Seedy. He's a listener of this show. And he's the one who pushed me to broadcast my classes and always tells me this. He says, Lenny, you got to talk on your podcast about Jews having more children. You look around the United States, Jews aren't having any kids. Puravu, this first commandment of the Torah. So yeah, having Jewish children is key to survival because every Jewish child is another soldier in the Jewish army. And it doesn't necessarily mean to be a soldier fighting in Gaza. Every Jew can contribute in his way. He's part of Tzavai Israel. He's part of the Jewish army. And, and in the army, there are a lot of different roles to fill. Moving on to what they call actualia. You know, I went shopping a couple of days ago for Shabbat. And, um, you know, when you go shopping or wherever you go, you see Arabs everywhere, usually. But since October 7th, if you're walking around Israel in the stores and even the pharmacies, you see a lot less Arabs. Apparently, since the October 7th massacre, Jewish owners have decided that maybe it's not such a good idea hiring Arabs for everything. Even in the settlements where you had Arab labor nonstop, all of a sudden you have a lot less, a lot less Arabs. You go to the supermarket where they cut the cheese and cut you the meat. You go to the cash register at the store Rami Levy. Instead of seeing your usual Arabs there, suddenly you got Jews there. And by the way, it's so much quieter now near the cash registers without the Arab workers screaming at one another. Yeah, you have a lot less of that, thank God. So obviously this is a healthy phenomenon. Hope it keeps up. 
because we know how dependent we are on Arab labor. And I got to tell you, I must have stood in line for two pieces of cheese for like a half hour because the girl there, she really didn't know how to work. I mean, she couldn't cut the cheese. She couldn't wrap the cheese. You can see that if she's not used to working at the cash register as well, the lines are really long because the workers are working at a slower pace. They're all new at this. So it's going to take time that we become a normal people and we have Jews working instead of Arabs working. And so the lines in these stores are much longer now in the pharmacies, in the supermarket. And a lot of it is because a lot of the workforce in these stores, are they're new at it, inexperienced. There's long lines, but you know what? Nobody is complaining. Nobody's complaining. Everybody's got a lot of patience. I haven't seen anybody open their mouth or make some kind of face that the line's taking so long and there's a lot of incompetence to boot. But you know what? It is so worth it. And we have to hope this trend continues. If we don't keep giving the Arabs work and Parnassa, maybe they'll go somewhere else. The last thing I wanted to talk about is the Hebrew language and how important it is to know Hebrew. As you may know, I give a Bible class uh, on the internet, Lenny Goldberg's Bible classes. It's a shiur in the Tanakh. And you can listen to them, Lenny Goldberg's Bible classes. You can Google that, or you can go to the website, LennyGoldberg.com, LennyGoldberg.com. And there you'll have a link to these podcasts and to my Bible classes. And when I do the classes, I always read the Hebrew first. I read the verse first, even though I know a lot of people don't know Hebrew. But I think it's really important to give the Hebrew and then give the English because you lose so much in the translation, as they say. And I wanted to give you an example from our Parsha that we read this past Shabbat, how silly it is to learn the Torah in English. In chapter two of the book of Exodus, that's the chapter where the daughter of Paro finds little Moshe in the uh, Teva. She brings him into the palace and verses like this, Vayigdal Moshe, and the child grew, that is Moshe, he grew up, and he was brought to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. Moses became the son of the daughter of Pharaoh. Now listen to this part. And she called his name Moses. Why did she call him Moses? Because I drew him out of the water. That is the word in Hebrew, sounds like Moshe, and that's how we got the name Moshe, from the word Meshiteu. But in English, of course, that doesn't make sense. She called him Moses because I drew him out of the water. What do you mean she called him Moses because she drew him out of the water? So she should have called him Drew. Yes, by that logic, it's not Moshe Rabbeinu, it's Drew the Jew. You see, you can't translate that. And this was significant because Moses had other names. He had the name that was given to him by his parents. But no, he was called by the name of Bat Paro because she was Moshe Nefesh for him, but she called him Drew. No, I mean, she called him Moses because she drew him out of the water, from the water. So that's why it's good to know Lashona Kodesh, the holy language. You can translate the holy language, but you can't translate the holiness of the language. And that's why when we learn Bible, we try to get people familiar with the Hebrew because at the end of the day, the English is only a commentary, an interpretation of the text. That's it for me. I'll be back next week, same time, same station. Like I said, you can find me on LennyGoldberg.com for classes, podcasts, articles, and books by Rabbi Meir Kahana and Binyamin Kahana for sale. Check me out there. See you next week.